Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Imam Tom Fokini. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, Tom, for those who don't know, um, uh, has kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. Now, apart from the intrinsic interest in what he might have to say, um, it will hopefully encourage us all to read good books for ourselves. Now, Tom uh, accepted Islam in his early 20s, and he holds a BA in political science from Vassar College and a BA in Islamic law from the Islamic University of Medina, no less, um, graduating in 2020. He's also a qualified chaplain. Tom is the is currently the imam and program director of Utica Masjid. Now, Utica is in New York, uh, in New York State, in America, obviously, as well as the imam of Hamilton College, where he does chaplaincy work. He also teaches tafsir to middle schoolers online through Legacy International Online High School. And he has a fantastic YouTube channel uh, entitled Utica Masjid, which I stumbled across by chance, if there's such a thing by as chance, um, and I will link to it in the description below. And um, it is a gem. Um, anyway, I won't praise you too much, but I would I definitely encourage people to subscribe to. I don't normally encourage people to subscribe to things when I do uh, these kind of uh, interviews, but I, I do on this occasion uh, uh, in an unqualified way. Do subscribe to Tom uh, Imam Tom's channel and for excellent content because it really is superb so um tom over to you what might be some of your favorite books well i guess i should start if i'm going to start chronologically then it kind of traces my it's it's an inseparable account of how i came to islam because i kind of came into college as very much on the left um, very much kind of progressive politics leaning towards uh, even some sort of uh, anarchism, Marxism, sorts of things like that. Those are my commitments when I, when I got to college. And then the interesting kind of path that I took was one of kind of a destabilization of the things that I had intellectually committed myself to and at the same time encountering Islam for the first time in a serious way. So the first kind of book that had kind of a profound impact on me was uh, actually um, The Order of Things by Foucault. So I, you know, Foucault is a controversial figure and rightly so, and there's lots to critique. Um, but there's also a lot of useful kind of um, 
perspective that he has. Uh, just to clarify, Foucault, uh, I mean, I don't want to, not for your benefit so much, but Foucault obviously oh. is a very famous French intellectual associated with Marxist Marxism to some extent and, and certain very fashionable um, French uh, ideas which have influenced the whole world, the whole rest, Western world, United States and latterly Britain as well. He, he's now uh, passed away, of course, but I think he was very prominent in the 1980s and the 1990s, perhaps. But um, yeah, sorry. No, thank you for that. And so, yeah, the, the main um, thing that the order of things awakened me to was his concept of episteme, right? So this kind of idea that there's a, a background grammar of associations of values of understandings that are kind of unspoken in any particular culture or more uh, accurately an era right and so it, we really risk um kind of falling into anachronisms right uh, if we're going to look into the past or we're going to look into a tradition such as islam and we might when you visit arizona time is measured in moments not minutes like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Look at, look at it with certain lenses. People want to know um, about uh, feminism in Islam or about uh, freedom in Islam or democracy in Islam. And, and people don't realize when they ask these sorts of questions that it's quite anachronistic because we're talking about uh, either concepts or categories that uh, developed not only in a different location, but also in a different time with different assumptions about who is a human being or what is the reality that we live in at all. And so um, that was kind of the first thing that awakened me to kind of think about these things. Um, it kind of particularized, I should say, um, to use that kind of jargon, yes. uh, the commitments that I had at the time. And that's kind of, I guess, one of the, the main takeaways that I got from Foucault is that there's sort of uh, academic disciplines that originated in the West, anthropology, political science, econ, et cetera, et cetera, that for a long time, uh, they engaged in producing knowledge about a certain quote unquote other, the, the Muslim or the, you know, the foreigner or the non-European subject. And Foucault kind of flipped the lens where he kind of took uh, some certain academic disciplines and subjected Europe and European institutions and European thought to those same tools. And so now instead of becoming the just assumed background through which everything is thought, now we can have a conversation about the particularity of certain ideas and certain categories and certain concepts. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the main thing that kind of, um, I guess, destabilized me. Um, in, I like that, destabilized. It, sh it shook you up uh, intellectually and made you realize the particularity or the relativity of the, the views which we take as common sense and just part of the air we breathe. Actually, they're very uh, regional, historically limited, uh, and the result of a long historical process uh, that you can we can look back to, you know, back to the Enlightenment and Renaissance and ancient Greece is all, you know, but it's very situated in a certain part of the globe that has become perhaps hegemonic um, now uh, for uh, other reasons. But uh, I like what you say. So that was kind of you, you're becoming self-aware of the historical contingency, I should say, the contingency yeah. of our beliefs. And they're not just natural, uh, although they feel very kind of just you know, it's a part of the air we breathe. Actually, they're very particular and it was sort of a long historical process that led to this, uh, where we are today. Yes, very much so. And so, you know, as I said, I came into college with this sort of very much solid leftist, uh, mm. even internationalist sort of position. Uh, and so that started to come into question. I started to attempt to account for my own beliefs and commitments 
Um, and then throughout my coursework, I actually started as a history major, but I didn't find history as interesting as political science. So I switched hey. <laughs> and eventually went to political theory uh, specifically. And my advisor was, uh, he was an Indian national and he was all about post-colonial theory. And so we mm. were heavily reading that sort of stuff. Um, so I came across that, my, the next big book, I guess, and, um, and thinker that kind of uh, took hold of me was Palal Asad. Right. And particularly the book, you know, Formations of the Secular. And this is something that has affected many, many people. Um, so he takes kind of the, the technique of Foucault, but he um, has more particular interests. Uh, and one of those interests was secularism, okay? uh, which was very, very interesting to me. Because mm -hmm. we, in the common culture, like the vernacular of people, we talk about secularism. And religion in a certain way we especially in america here uh separation of church and state like this is a, a big thing everybody don't talk religion and politics you know all these sorts of things that everybody <laughs> always says uh, i always only wanted to talk about religion and politics by the and way it's, but, it's so ironic by the rest of the world we, we see the you know millions and millions of evangelical christians who are passionately zionist um, you, were, you were influencing American foreign policy and electing people, um, to, to, which has geopolitical concept. I mean, you couldn't get a more in, in, uh, in, intrinsically, uh, inextricably bound up political religious system, even though it's officially the opposite, his absolute separation. Uh, the rest of us, it looks very ironic that that rhetoric right. is still believed to be kind of true in, in any way. But Certainly. And so kind of the surface level point is where some people have, have noticed is that, okay, well, this is hypocritical. There is religion in politics. There is religion. Yeah. But the, the, the underlying point is that the relationship between secularism or what, what we ever want to say, the secular state and religion is not one of separation. It's actually one of active production, right? So um, the, the idea that there could be such a thing as a secular state uh, by default, requires the production of a certain definition of religion, even the category of religion itself, right? Like this of word we have, religion, okay? And that was one of the big things that you know, blew my mind about Essay is that, you know, this, um, people weren't calling it religion up uh, until very recently. They were calling it truth and falsehood. Right? Or they were calling it uh, orthodoxy and, and heterodoxy, or they're calling it, they were thinking through these things in, in other categories. And so there is no such thing as religion without the secular. Right, like the, the secular is is directly involved in producing something. Maybe we call it acceptable faith or acceptable religiosity. It becomes the judge. Yes. It becomes the arbiter. This happens all the time in, in our country in the Supreme Court, and they have to because people are going to appeal for certain exemptions or something on grounds of their religious faith. Mm. Well, which religious faiths are considered legitimate? which religious commitments and beliefs are considered normative, which are considered uh, reasonable. Uh, these are all things that this quote unquote secular state has to adjudicate all the time, right? So um, it, isn't, it is not a, just a mere issue of separation and distance. It is one in which actually the, the secular produces a certain type of acceptable religiosity, one that might be, um, one that might be, uh, that might, I should say, prioritize or emphasize or encourage a privatization of faith or um, a certain entrance of religion and politics. Like you say, if we're talking about 
uh, the entrance of evangelical politics into our relationship with Israel, then okay, that's okay. That's but very, that's you, very okay. It's, it's almost, I mean, I'm, I'm an outsider, so forgive me if I'm wrong. Yes. It almost seems it's obligatory. It's not like it's permitted. It's yes. compulsory in the public domain, in the media and so on. One must almost perform the endorsement and the encouragement of certain positions on a certain subject, shall we say, um, oh, yeah. I, I, to be at all uh, a part of the mainstream even, to be acceptable in public discourse. It's that, it's that uh, compulsory. Yes. And, and one, one term that, that makes its rounds that kind of captures that sentiment uh, very well, I think, is the whole idea of a Judeo-Christian tradition, right? This kind of myth that's been established as yes. somehow uh, Christianity and, and, and Judaism have something more in common. And that kind of leaves the third wheel as Islam, you know, you know out on the outside looking in. Um, it, it kind of tips its hat or, or acknowledges this sort of, yes, mandatory entrance of, of religion, a certain type of religion yes. into secular politics. Whereas others, if we're to take the logic and apply it evenly across the board, it would be completely uh, rejected. And if we're going to draw sort of, let's imagine the affinities, uh, the geographical affinities that Muslims have across the world. Uh, when, yes. when, when Iraq was invaded or when Afghanistan was invaded or these other sorts of things, you know, they, they're, not, they're not only considered, to further your point, they're not only considered illegitimate, they are by definition uh, a pariah right, to the state. They are, they are a security risk. They have to be neutralized. They have to be policed and they have to be, um, you know, certain actors need to be thrown in jail. You have the Holy Land Foundation, right, that was raising money for, for Gaza or the, or the West Bank and uh, they were thrown. They were thrown in jail on the subject of a big um, criminal investigation, supposedly because, based on some suspicion, that the money that they were raising was going to Hamas in in, in Gaza. So, it's very, very politicized. It's nothing but politicized. And sort of what religiosity is able to enter into the supposedly neutral public sphere is actually um, very uh, particularly defined. Yes. Yes. No. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. So that was so that was kind of what spurred me onto this path of thinking about yes religiosity and it honestly it kind of brought me back to religiosity because at that point in my life I didn't think very highly of religion um, but when I saw and part of my other studies and there's not one particular book I can point to but it's the sort of typical post-colonial canon of Benan and Homi Baba and Spivak and these people that you know we were reading as part of the coursework allowed me to see that the civilization mission of European colonization had never stopped. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That it simply only changed forms or it had different waves. Right? Yeah. So you could identify perhaps the first wave as the, the conversion impetus. 
right? And then perhaps the second wave was the resource extraction. And then the third wave perhaps was the, the secular civilization mission, right? We have, um, when we get to the 1800s, especially from the mid 1800s on, most of the colonial encounters, it's not about converting people to a certain religion. It's about trying to civilize, yeah. civilize the brute, civilize the, the barbarian. Right? And this language you're using is not you retrospectively characterizing it. So that is the language that was used. Oh, yeah. Actually, because civilizing uh, Muslims oh, yeah. who, need, who needed to be civilized. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And this was seen as uh, the, the, uh, the prime directive of the West. It, it was yes. to civilize, civilize the world and and you're saying that that this, this whole kind of prime directive has changed form but the the fundamental imperative is still active today uh you yet to say how but i i think you have a good point yes and the, the final way we could say that we're still writing is the whole human rights regime okay so we're talking about the institutions such as the un and the imf and the world bank and how a lot of times financial resources and financial flexibility is tied to certain ideas of what human rights should look like, what women's rights should look like. Um, Sabah Mahmoud collaborated uh, with some other thinkers on a very powerful article around the time of the invasion of Afghanistan about the discourse uh, that was used before the invasion of Afghanistan in mm. 2001 and how the war was justified on yes. humanitarian grounds. Yes. about liberating the Afghani women. And this is a trope that goes back a long, yes. long time. Yes. But this is the sort of thing. It's, it's another wave of colonialism, um, saving, you know, especially saving the Muslim, supposedly oppressed Muslim woman from the barbaric Muslim man. Yeah. Um, but there's other sorts of things. It could be gay rights. Uh, it could be women's rights. It could well, be... Haven't recently, literally in the last week or so, um, I, I think the, the, was it the American embassy in Kuwait um, had the temerity to hoist the, the LGBT rainbow flag thing. Um, much to the, uh, and the Kuwaiti government uh, or whatever, protest, the ambassador protested, why mm. you flag, for, you know, this is absolutely contrary to our values and, and our faith. But the, the arrogance that, uh, that the country should do that is part of this civilizing mission so that Muslims now will change their religion and see things as secular liberal Westerners do when it comes to a whole raft of issues to do with gender, gender role, sexuality, you name it. So the, 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 uh, the, the prime directive, I'm calling it, um, continues, in, uh, and, but it's just as aggressive because it's now um, in your face and it's not negotiable. You've got to accept this agenda. And this agenda, by the way, is always changing. I mean, it's very different from what it was five years ago. Uh, and doubtless it's very different from what it would be in five, ten years. Who knows what then it will be? Maybe the right to people to commit incest or, or uh, I could speculate about bestiality or peer. who knows what things which are unthinkable and taboo now. But these things we accept today were unthinkable and taboo five minutes ago. So who knows what the next uh, prime directive will, will require Muslims to embrace from the West and the whole world, not just uh, Muslims, uh, by the way, uh, Catholics, traditional Catholics, traditional Jews, um, even traditional atheists will also be required to uh, submit to this prime directive. Very much so. And it's very much by hook and by crook. I mean, like there's there's incentives and then there's interference, there's destabilization. Right. And this is a point that we'll get to later when we talk about halak, the idea of exceptionality. Right. Or the idea that, um, you know, the world can run on democracy until it steps out of bounds and then it needs an intervention. Right. So if, an, if for example, the one of the prime examples is, is Gaza, when they elected Hamas as their democratic, democratically elected government, I believe that was 2006. Um, that couldn't happen, right? That was the wrong choice. 
And so which value is going to win out? Is it going to be the, the process value of people and self-determination and these freedom and all these sorts of things that we hear liberalism justified upon the grounds of, or is it going to be, well, who's really amenable, uh, amenable to neoliberal capitalism and to our conception of women's rights or our conception of the human being, right? It's kind of like, uh, it's clear which one takes priority. And yeah, but I, I don't think it's just that. I, th I think, I mean, historically, we looked at Chile in the, the it's what's called the other 9-11, as it's called, because September the 11th, I think it was 1977 or something, 1970s, when the democratically elected government of Chile, headed by Allende, was his name, was actually overthrown by the Americans. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is a recognized, documented fact. And then before that, in 1953, I think, there was a democratically elected government in Iran. This is before... Uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini and the, the current regime. And the democratic government that was actively overthrown, not just by the CIA, but by our guys, MI6. Even the BBC had a role. If you Google this, there's actually a whole uh, Wikipedia page. I, I find it fascinating how the BBC played a role. This is the British Broadcasting Authority uh, Corporation here in the UK, actually had a very interesting role in the timing of the overthrow of the democratically elected government in Iran. You wouldn't believe it. But the reason was, Oil, oil. Uh, um, and uh, so the, the West has a very long history of overthrowing democratically elected governments when they don't conform to the policy agenda or expectations of Washington and London, usually. That they're usually so it's not really to do with democracy, but the democracy is not the highest good at the end of the day. It's what's in the West's interests, whether it be geopolitics or oil or whatever. Anyway. When you visit Arizona, Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Yeah, they have many tools in the toolbox, right? So regime change is one of those yeah. one of those tools. Financial destabilization is another one of those tools. Interfering in, in elections in the first place, you know, yes. uh, is another one of those tools. Yeah. Um, all sorts of things that they have. And yeah, so, it, it, so it's very much, we're still living in the state of colonial opposition. And the irony, the irony is that you'll have folks, especially liberals in North America and the quote unquote West who um, are wringing their hands about the legacy, the colonial legacy um, of yesteryear, and yet they're on the front lines uh, of today's colonialism. They're on the front nice. line. A very of, nice, a very nice point there, Tom. Very nice point. Yes, they're, they're kind of disowning the past colonialism, but they're actually through the back door, they're promoting a new kind of colonialism, uh, but whilst pretending not to be promoting colonialism at all. Um, yes. Yeah, very interesting. Right. So, um, so, and there's a you know, getting back to Essed. So one of his footnotes, mm -hmm. I'll never forget. One thing that stuck with me. Um, he shows how this sort of, he, he, he uses one historical example to show how there's sort of this, um, this is a legacy of, uh, again, I guess this, this goes back to the difference or the disconnect between the legitimizing discourse and the reality. Right? So we're talking about how does the, the world justify these sorts of interventions for freedom and democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But really there's something else going on. So Essad, you know, cites in one of his footnotes um, when the, the European colonial powers at the end of World War I are about to carve up Turkey uh, or the Ottoman Empire. Um, they don't get to do it as much as they wanted to for reasons, obviously, but 
they, they have the plan, they have the maps all drawn out and they have the, um, their kind of speech prepared, their justification. And the British had included uh, the, the reason for crimes against Christendom. Okay, so it said crimes against Christendom and that would be the whole Armenian situation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but France objected to the, that language because mm-hmm. France had territory, you know, vast territories in which they had lots of Muslims, West Africa, and they said, no, we can't use that language. We have to use something else. So the language that they settled upon was crimes against humanity. And that was the first instance of the use of this phrase, according to Esedavis, crimes against humanity. So we see how we have this assumed Christian subject who the the powers that be, we want to call it Europe, we want to call it the West, whatever we want to call it, have realized that they need to cloak that actual subject with a more universal language, Mm. right? We can't get around um, just slaying people and saving the Christians and, you know, fighting the infidels anymore, we have to, uh, we have to at least give lip service to the fact that this is for all humanity. And people believe in that actually to, to various degrees or, or not. Um, but this sort of di- discord is, is something that has always kind of stuck with me. Um, so to get back to kind of, I guess, the, the broader sort of trajectory I was on. So Esed really awoken in me the, the idea of the religious as sort of a, a sphere or something to, um, redirect my attention back to, or perhaps rethink, because he's saying that, okay, part and parcel of this new colonialism, or at least the implication, he doesn't really, he's not uh, super um, confrontational with his language, but inferred in his work is that one of the arenas of this new colonialism is also the secular, right? The replacement of the religious subjects, or what we used to be called a subject, maybe a moral subject, a spiritual subject, a theological subject, an orthodox subject with a secular citizen. Mm. Right? And that's where he, he places the, the difference of secularism and the kind of the, what makes secularism special is that he calls it a transcendent identity. So it replaces, it actually displaces how we think about ourselves before the idea of a secular and a religious. How did people conceive of themselves? They conceive of themselves primarily as maybe human, primarily as perhaps souls, primarily as Muslims, primarily as Christians. You know. um, the logic of secularism requires a transcendent, a transcendent identity that is the citizen, mm-hmm. in which now the religious identity is tucked as a minor identity marker, you know, just like alongside your ethnicity and your gender and your whatever else you have. So that goes back to kind of Foucault and the idea of the, the order of things. How are you arranging things? What are the categories through which you're thinking? If you're thinking through the secular, then religion can only be something that is private, something that is uh, a not, uh, we could say, a secondary or a tertiary sort of identity marker. Uh, and what, what strikes me very much is that classically, uh, Catholicism, the world's largest religion, um, uh, would have agreed very much with Islam in, in identifying the, 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 the human being uh, as uh, a servant of God or a child of God uh, in, in a theological and metaphysical universe. So there was no secular realm. It was there was Christendom, of course, this great concept of Christendom, which is arguably parallel with the idea of, of say, like the Ottoman Empire. But um, um, but but that is gone now. And since the Second Vatican Council, at least in the Catholic Church, now there seems to have, it seems to have largely. It could be mistaken, but my impression is largely to accepted the secular agenda. So they accepted secular democracy, the language of human rights, and so on, and and the private role of religion now, which wasn't the case before in in faith. And then with Jews as well today, who 
appear to me wrongly, perhaps as largely secular, but historically with Israel, of course, the state, I, I mean, the biblical, the Israelites in Israel, I should say, um, in the, in the Jewish Bible was anything but a secular state. You know, you had God ruling through his prophets, through his kings, uh, occasionally directly. Um, so it seems to me, uh, and maybe this is the attraction where you're going to, that Islam is the only uh, Abrahamic faith or global faith left standing that is um, completely, uncon well, largely uncontaminated by uh, the, the winds of secularism, which have basically humanized or secularized other faiths. And Islam is left standing alone to face inverted commas modernity. I say inverted commas because it's not just modern, it's Western, it's secular, it's liberal, and has a very particular historical origin, a particular expression, and it's evolving and changing all the time as well. So anyway, that would be my segue. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And that's exactly sort of the realization I had that, that got me interested in Islam in the first place. Um, right. That's exactly what I came to feel uh, in my first undergrad, that Islam was the last thing left. Yes. And I hadn't even uh, done the research that I had done you know, since then about even how far Eastern faiths such as Buddhism and such as Hinduism and such as other uh, Taoism and, and other traditions have kind of been uh, subjected to the secularizing and, and reforming process uh, in really, really interesting ways. I wish there was actually more uh, awareness about that, maybe for a, a, future, a future project. But Islam really is kind of the last... Mm pre-modern in the sense that you spoke the definition of modern yeah. um, faith system that's left standing, even, yeah. even, you know, a uh, source of, of culture or source of sentiment, or even we could say in, in Foucault's terms, episteme, it's, it's the last resistant episteme where you can actually have an, an entirely different worldview because the diversity that's being, that's being kind of championed today is the, the thinnest and most yeah. superficial type yeah. of diversity we have. We would like to have, all different skin colors and all different clothes and all different whatever, maybe foods, but everybody believes the same thing. Yes, yeah, so different, different sexualities, but we're all, as you say, we're, we're within, within this same concept, the same paradigm, yes. which is bounded by secular liberalism, because within this, you're not going to, uh, traditional believers, be they uh, Muslim, Catholic or Jewish, have no home. The one thing you can't be, I should say, is traditional. So you can't believe in traditional values, the traditional reference to the transcendent, um, uh, I God, that, that that is other, you know, you, you, as you're saying, within our own small little bubble, that's what's permissible only. Yes, yes, very much. So, uh, so that was kind of the, the start of that whole inquiry, and that led me down the path that it led me. Um, and I came to see how the secular was just as much a crucial part of the new colonialism as the other mm -hmm. sorts of aspects of human rights and this and that and the other. And so that was, you know, after, after time, that kind of, um, long story short, that's how I came to Islam. But with, um, that kind of wraps up, uh, Esad, but then there's other sort of thinkers that are tied to him. There was, uh, Sabah Mahmoud, who, who I read uh, a bit of, who was an anthropologist. She passed away. Um, but she had a book called Politics of Piety. That was very nice. Um, it was super interesting because her positionality coming to it, she was kind of like a secular Pakistani woman um, who was doing fieldwork in Egypt about the mosque movement or about some sort of um, religious revivalism in Egypt. And through stepping outside of her own culture, she was able to see Islam in a completely different light. Wow. And it, 
not going to claim that, you know, she had this, you know, personal revelation and became like a super practicing, I don't know, I don't know her personal life, but she at least, and you pick this up in the book, came to appreciate after she left her own cultural kind of context and cultural rivalries about secularism in, in Pakistan versus, you know, religious, uh, whatever in Pakistan, what she was able to observe in Egypt was something entirely different. And she actually wrote very profoundly about um, the mosque movement and about sort of religious revivalism and the sorts of concerns, mm-hmm. um, sorts of concerns that, are, that have been very central to me since I embarked on this path, which is exactly that. So uh, one of my chief concerns as just a thinking person and someone who has kind of the training or experience as I do is drawing the line between that kind of secularized or secular produced religion and our authentic pre-modern, pre-secular religious tradition. Because the danger, the danger, and this is you know obvious to you, is that the danger is that we think maybe we're presented with a form of Islam or presented with a form of religiosity that we believe to be the authentic pre-modern continuous tradition that is Islam. And in reality, it's the secular reforms production that is right. very amenable to the, the secular nation state. And then we forget. And then then what? Right. That's that's right. like the worst thing. And th- what makes it tricky is that everybody knows in Islam, if you're a Muslim, you know that you have to appeal to Quran and Sunnah. Every single movement has to appeal to Quran and Sunnah. No one's going to take you seriously unless mm-hmm. you say that your beliefs are based on Quran and Sunnah. But but that doesn't mean that the things that you're advocating for are necessarily part of that continuous tradition. Maybe, it may be that there's something that's new that's been introduced into how you're interacting or interpreting or even applying this tradition that is actually part of this colonial heritage and not something that goes back further than that. So that's always interested me, trying to delineate those sorts of things. And I, I think it, it, it's. I was just saying. I think it's made it a lot harder, uh, and this happens both in the United States and in Britain too. Is the political alliance between Muslim activists and intellectuals and politicians and the left, the political left, which seems to be the default position. So, the, the, and and this this comes at a huge price tag. Yes, the left may come to our aid to protect us and speak for Muslims if they're attacked or oppressed, and that that's all very nice. It's very good, of course, but I I, I would think it comes at a huge price tag. Uh, and for many Muslims, obviously not going to mention any names, of course, but for many Muslims, it appears to me that they uh, become very quiet or very silent on those issues uh, which the left do champion now very, very loudly and aggressively, which, of course, are antithetical to the Muslim position. So there's it's kind of you get this kind of truncated um, Islam presented in effect to the public because it's not the form, it's not the holistic system where there's ethics and the politics and there's uh, teachings of sexual morality and so on. It, it's a kind of uh, mm-hmm. truncated version, uh, which kind of fits in with the left's uh, alliance, the alliance with the left. And that, that's really sad because um, for obvious reasons, for those reasons, but also because I think, and I know it's a bit different in America, but th- there is much on the traditional right, as it's call it in Britain, the conservative right, which is very similar and overlaps with Islamic teaching. For example, the socially conservative views about marriage and and, and uh, roles, gender roles, and so on. Um, and for those reasons, which I understand in America, there have been quite violent attacks from the right on Muslims, but at least there are conservative thinkers like Sir Roger Scruton, the British philosopher, who 
um, who, who, who did in his later years, he died recently, have very positive engagements and conversations with Hamza Yusuf, for example, at Zaytuna, um, uh, where there seemed to be a considerable convergence between traditional conservative philosophy and politics and Islamic discourse. And I, I found that very refreshing rather than the usual kind of uh, left-wing militant um, political discourse and the Muslim involvement in that as almost a, a, a sine qua non of any involvement in public life, an indispensable condition of public life. Yeah, very much so. Someone put it, and I thought it was very succinct. They said that uh, the right wants to kill Muslims and the left wants to kill Islam. Yeah. And, um, yes. That's, that's fairly accurate. Um, and yeah, 100% what you said, we need to be aware of the categories through which we're thinking about our religion. You know, if somebody is, you know, you take all of the categories that are meaningful to the left, justice, uh, you know, individual autonomy, uh, all these sorts of things. If those are your sacred categories, right, yes. and you can yes. come to the tradition, you can come to the Quran and the Sunnah, those are your blinders. Those are your, yes. your the lens that you're looking through. You're only going to you're going to curate the tradition and only choose that which yeah. uh, adheres to this regime of kind of values and principles. And everything that violates it, you're either going to not notice in the first place, or you're going to yeah. uh, explain it away in some sort of sense. And you've predict that's the danger that you've then produced a new Islam yes. that is not actually Islam, but maybe you you do actually believe that it's Islam. Yes. As opposed to, you know, trying to reclaim what are the actual, we could say, indigenous categories through which we think things, through which we think uh, of things as Muslims. That's right. right. Yeah, absolutely okay. right. Yeah, so the the next book, or I guess the, 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 the final book, and this is one that I haven't even finished yet, but that's engrossing me, and is and we talked a little bit about it, is Halak Wa Al-Halak. Oh, yes. Uh, particularly restating... Uh, Orientalism. So Orientalism, uh, I read a lot of Sa'id as part of my first uh, undergrad, and I didn't get around to reading Halak until actually fairly recently. Mm. And um, uh, Halak seems to me like ha to have taken this kind of trajectory of, of Esad and taken it even further. Mm. Um, and he has a lot more familiarity and expertise when it comes to the Islamic tradition um, than I think Esad had. Oh, yeah. Esad... Sometimes I read Esed and I feel like he really pulled his punches. Like, you know, he, he has in the meat of his book so much uh, there that's, that's ready to critique and subvert and undermine sort of the things that are going on. And then kind of his recommendations at the end are like very, very like polite. Whereas I feel like uh, Halak is, is much more kind of straightforward and, and much more um, uh, not confrontational, but uh, direct when it comes to his, his criticisms of kind of this modern episteme. Can, 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 we, can we just clarify for people who don't know who Halak is? Halak happens to be a, a professor at Columbia University in the United States. He is a Christian and he's born in a, a place called Nazareth, which I think someone else very, rather famous was born there once. I, think, I forget who. Um, and um, no, he was born in, in Nazareth, seriously. He's a Christian and he features I kid you not, in the top 500 leading Muslim thinkers or leaders in the world, if you look at the top 500 list uh, put out by Muslims, he's in it. He's not even a Muslim. <laughs> so he's like, he's like an honorary Muslim because he understands Islam uh, uh, very well, it seems, particularly Sharia, Islamic law. He has a um, he's an expert. He teaches Islamic law at Columbia University, amongst many other things, philosophy and history and politics, political theory. And he is the latest hot thing to go. I mean, I'm reading The Impossible State, 
by him at the moment. Uh, like yourself, I, I've only encountered his work recently, um, much belatedly. So, uh, and I'm, I'm I just, in, is, this is an award-winning book, uh, very significant uh, product, just written um, some years ago. And he's written another book or two since then. Um, but no, he is hot property, uh, intellectual hot property. And he's a must-read author, I understand. And I'm certainly benefiting from him in the moment. So back to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely uh, engrossed. You know, there, there comes along uh, some of those books where you just, you stay up at night uh, trying to finish them or trying to finish the chapter. And and that's it's definitely one. Um, what I like particularly about restating Orientalism is that he takes kind of, because people have a lot of critiques and people are very suspicious, you know, uh, for example, because I've kind of been influenced by Foucault and that sort of critical theory sort of milieu. A lot of people, they have very little respect for that sort of milieu and rightly so because of where the culture has gone, right? Like a lot of kind of, at least in North America, the way that um, certain ideas or certain strains within postmodern theory and within um, you know, critical theory have made it into the mainstream um, in a very problematic way. Mm. And so some people look very, you know, askance at me, of, well, you read Foucault and these, these sorts of guys. But um, it, those are oversimplifications, right? There's definitely a lot to glean. And uh, I think Halak shows the power or the potential power of kind of those methods when they're applied in, in the right way, because um, he's looking at this modern episteme that we're in and he's taking, especially in restating Orientalism, because his, his point of departure for the book is to kind of critique Saeed in his yes. books, Orientalism and, um, yes. and culture and imperialism, which were yes. required reading for us when we were, when, you know, in political. Yeah, I mean, Edward Saeed was like the precursor in some ways, if that makes sense, of Halak. He also was a Palestinian, although I don't think he was born in Nazareth. Maybe he was born in Bethlehem. I don't know, but he was born in Palestine and ended up in America and being a professor as well. So they end up in the same kind of trajectory. But his magnum opus, his great work, is Orientalism. It's called Orientalism. And this was like required reading. I think it probably still is required reading on university courses when it comes to, but I'll, I'll show you here. Um, show you how, so, so this is uh, the book, Orientalism, with a, bit, a rather dodgy uh, cover. Uh, it's a highly ac acclaimed uh, work. And uh, uh, he um, uh, sadly passed away uh, um, a couple of years ago, but oh, he was a professor at Columbia University as well. I've just realized. I wonder if he was the predecessor. Uh, uh, of, anyway, this is the book you're referring to. Um, yes. It's called Restating Oriental, A Critique of Modern Knowledge uh, by Halak. There we go, which I've not read yet. It's on my reading list to read uh, next. And uh, it is hot property. This is what one should be reading at the moment. If one wants to be seriously engaged in the current debates about political theory and critiquing Western epistemology, this Effortless assumption that way we the way we see the world in the West is the natural normative way that the universal prism through which we see reality. And in fact, it's not really like that at all. It's very particular and it has particular agendas. And when it comes to Muslims, it can be very toxic. Anyway, I don't, don't anticipate that. And um, you know, I think that a, a kind of a latent benefit of the book is that it delineates kind of the uh, the useful parts about critical theory from the more I think harmful parts because he really um, blasts Said, uh, to be honest, when it comes to his theoretical sloppiness and yeah. his lack of rigor, uh, and and he he pulls quotes and he you know he's he's referencing very very specific things about basically the climate that. 
that Said had basically taken uh, critical theory and turned it into the cultural phenomenon it is today, where it's just basically identity politics, where it's like, if you're not from X place, you can't speak about X, right? Um, if you are not Arab, you can't speak about Arabs if you're not, right? That was his idea. His, his conception of Orientalism was simply misrepresentation. Right? Yes. And so, um, which is very, very thin uh, compared to what Halak like, goes to, basically. <laughs> Halak actually compares himself to, he, he says that uh, I, I hijacked Saeed's ship and I rebuilt it and I took it to a completely different destination. So he, wow. his project in the book is to kind of take the, the, the parts of, Sa- of Saeed's kind of uh, either sensibility or whatever theoretical value he had but then to really put some meat on the bones and to make it rigorous and to make it theoretically robust. Yeah. Um, and, what, and what he ends up producing is absolutely amazing. Whereas we see the, the Orientalism of Saeed ha- is the one that has drifted into mainstream culture yes. um, where, you know, and the left and the, what we associate with postmodernism and, and whatever Marxist culture, whatever we want to call it. Um, but Halak has a completely different take entirely. Um, and, and, and he 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 he, he critiques Foucault as well. Foucault appears in the Impossible State. Anyway, that I've read, he actively engages with the you know the the, the very influential philosophers and political theorists from the West, often from France for some reason, um, who 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 kind of form the uh, epistemological background that we live and breathe through today, and we don't realize it. So that, uh, and and part of Halak's brilliance is to kind of deconstruct this and show that this is where this comes from. It's not kind of just a natural phenomena. Yes, very much so. And and one of his major, I guess, points in the book is, okay, we use this word modern all the time, but uh, it's actually quite a slippery concept. It's certainly yeah. not a coherent one. Where do we uh, draw the line? What, what is the beginning of the modern? Is modern simply having technology, gadgetry, industrial revolution? Is it the enlightenment? Is it the episteme? What is it really? Um, and Halak, I think, you know, he has a more narrow definition of what modernity is than some other thinkers who try to even expand it back to the, the Renaissance even, or just after the Renaissance. So Halak is talking about modernity as basically the point at which um, the state became sovereign. Right. Yes. Okay, so, uh, whereas, and someone's like, and, and we do this all the time, even again, talking about anachronisms, when we talk about um uh, the Muslim state of Medina, right? Halak would probably uh, bristle at that. He'd have, have a heart attack if you said that to him. Yeah. Yes, he would. He would. He'd fail you if you were a student of his and you said that and you quoted that in an essay. Yes. You'd fail in his class. Yes. You'd get a big red line. Yes, exactly. You would. You would. He, he, his point is that the state is something entirely different. It's, yes. it's a technology of governance that has that is completely unprecedented in its reach and its ability to shape the interiority of subjects. Whereas uh, before, there was always something external to governance to hold it to some type of accountability, even if there were uh, individual situations where maybe there was a despot or a tyrant who, who superseded those bounds. But yes. at least even, even the, the, hmm. the king that claimed to be a god, um, he had to adhere to what people's expectations were for what a god should be. And he risked um, losing legitimacy if he violated any of those sorts of expectations. The king, you know, before constitutionalism, there was still a sense of common law. There was a sense of, of proprietariness or justness that had to be adhered to. Um, that was above himself. Yeah. He, couldn't, he didn't have absolute sovereignty in the sense that he yeah. couldn't do 
ex just exactly whatever he wanted to without any justification. He had to justify himself yes. according to some regime of sensibility or some regime of, 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 of ethics. Whereas what happens with the modern state is that uh, the modern state has freed itself from needing to legitimize itself to basically anything. It doesn't admit that, right? If we look at the, dem the democratic state, we have all this pageantry about elections and things like that, social compact theory and this kind of uh, collective delusion that um, we uh, accept the governing structures just by going to the polls every four years, right? Uh, which is kind of a fantastic notion. But uh, in reality, in reality, uh, mm. the state is completely sovereign, absolutely sovereign in, a, in an unprecedented way. It has there, the, there, there's a fantastic quote here. I actually have it on my iPhone because I'm yeah. so impressed but by Halak. If I may just read it. It's about secularism, but also to do with uh, the state. He says, uh, I forget which book this is from. I think it might be from The Impossible State. Let us remember what secularism is, writes Professor Halak. Secularism is not just segregating religious life into the private sphere. It is rather the determination of the state of what religion is and is not, where and how it can be exercised. In terms of political theology, I mean, political theology, that's a subject in itself, secularism is the murder of God by the state. Yeah, that is so, that is that sentence itself is so cool. In terms of political theology, secularism is the murder of God by the state. The state can delimit, limit, exclude, or curtail any religious practice, thinking here of France, for example, and thus has the power to determine the quality and quantity of the religious sphere as it sees fit. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely that's a great prose, but also yeah, it really gets to the heart of the matter in terms of this idea of political theology is something I'd love to see more re revived, not just not just theology, which I'm very interested in, or just politics, but political theology, because the West has a very uh, profound political theology, or they might not put it in those terms, uh, in, in its secular view, uh, where, where secularism is the murder of God by the state. The state is the new God, particularly in places like France, where the ultimate authority, the sovereignty now belongs to the state in a very absolute way. And lo and behold, if any Muslim possibly says, Allahu Akbar, God is greater than, which is just the, the basic belief that God is sovereign. And, and that is um, political suicide in France. You, it, it's actually a blasphemy against the secular God to actually say God is greater than that. Um, anyway. Yes, no, France is actually a very useful example for uh, showing the type of secularism kind of taken to its, its, its final form or maybe its logical conclusion because, you know, there's a lot less, uh, the, the mask has been ripped off, so yes. to say, you know, all the, the pretense of toleration and the pretense of, uh, you know, rational discourse is completely gone. I mean, they, they simply uh, are viciously kind of attacking and policing the interiority of people. And that's the kind of point of that Halak has, right? Because it's not simply how you conduct yourself in public. It's how do you feel interior, you know, to yourself? Are you, is your allegiance to the state? Yes. Or is your allegiance to Allah or yes. Islam? And if, and we're going to find out yes. if your allegiance is really to yes. Islam or to Allah, maybe it's the hijab, maybe it's Allahu Akbar, maybe you're, you want to yes. homeschool, maybe you have a beard, whatever, whatever that external signs are. What yep. we're really concerned is is your interiority. That's totalitarian in a way that no pre-modern governance structure could imagine.
And certainly wow. no Islamic governance. If you look at the, the great Islamic uh, the Ottoman empires and so on, people were allowed to believe and have their own communities. They weren't required by the state to believe anything. Um, you know, on the contrary, Christians were allowed to uh, drink wine and, and eat pork and have Christian beliefs. And so in an Islamic framework under Islamic governance. And uh, it was, but the, in a sense, the, the Islamic experience historically, politically, was much more pluralist and diverse in the real, in a real sense, not just in the narrow way that you mentioned earlier. The modern Western democracies are; they're much less diverse and less pluralist. And when I say this to people in the West, they just don't believe. They say, "What are you talking about? How, how can this be true?" Until you actually explain it to them how it how it's true, how, how the Ottoman system worked for I don't know seven, eight hundred years. You know, or, or back to Medina, the, the so-called constitution of, of Medina, where, where um, you know uh, Jews and Muslims and so on were each given their their rights to practice freely their faith under the 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 the, the, the rulership, if you like, of the Prophet Muhammad upon him be peace. So this is part of the DNA of Islam. It's not some kind of modern liberal idea. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. No, it's 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 shocking once you remove kind of the smoke and mirrors and the mm. mask off of things. How. Uh, even the so-called virtues that the West attempts to attain to, uh, whatever are legitimate virtues, Islam has completely outpaced them, both both historically and textually. Right? If we're going to talk about real tolerance, not just phony surface-level tolerance, then uh, Islam far outpaces the West in the history of Europe and Christianity. Uh, and the same thing with pluralism and these sorts of things. Yeah, so... Yeah, no, it, it's very true. And so uh, that's Halak is sensitive to that throughout his writings. And that's one of the, the most beautiful things about reading his writing is that it and uh, irony of all ironies is that, you know, yes, he's perhaps not a Muslim. I mean, Allah knows best, but yeah, he doesn't profess to be a Muslim. And so the way he, that he writes about Islam, it makes you feel that Izzah, it makes you feel a certain pride in the pre-modern uh, Islam and practice of, of the Sharia and, and of Islam. He has a really interesting discussion in Restating Orientalism about the differences between um, the LLC, right, the Limited Liability Corporation, and the WAP, right, two different technologies. And his point, and people make this mistake all the time, they, they, um, they engage in what I, I believe he calls the theology of history, which is to assume that um, technology just you know, unfolds in some linear fashion, and it's just a matter of time until you know, the nuclear weapons happen and this happens and that happens. And, you know, Halak does take kind of the, the method of Foucault and say, no, that the episteme is what's going to shape the contours of what you can even think. Yes. The episteme is going to shape the possibilities of what you can even do. Even yeah. the words that we have in the language for things, like the, the episteme is going to, to, it's not like, you know, uh, an extremely narrow path, but there are borders to it. It's not infinite. And so the episteme is going to determine what you can possibly think, say, and do. And so the point is not that Muslims did not have the technology, for example. They simply were behind the West and couldn't invent a nuclear warhead. It was that the episteme prevented such barbarity, right? The, the, the episteme that sought to um, the type of subject that the Sharia aims to produce, the moral subject, yeah. is incapable of imagining such a destructive and barbaric thing. Yeah. And so well, people put all this pride in sort of military technology and advancement. And, and really all that it's proven is that there are some people that are more ruthless than others and are, have, you know, uh, sicker imaginations and more barbaric imaginations than others. And then we come full circle because who's the, who's the, the savage and who's the civilized, 
Mm-hmm. No, I, I, absolutely, absolutely true. I, I was thinking about the recent technologies developed to, you know, gender transitioning and all the sophisticated technology, you know, to actually, you know, this would be, it's not that Muslims couldn't develop, they would never develop that because it would be unthinkable because it would violate certain basic moral uh, commitments to the nature of male and female and so on. But the, the West uh, often is, it has not been inhibited by any moral code, it seems. It, it said, if science can do it, you go ahead and do it. See if you can invent th- this weapon of mass destruction, i.e. nuclear weapon, and, and use it. The only country in the world, I think, has ever used nuclear weapons on civilian populations is the United States of America, twice uh, and- in, in Japan, and it destroyed Nagasaki and Harish Harish. And it's the only country that's ever done that in history actually, uh, that actually use weapons of mass destruction um, on a massive scale. Um, anyway, this is yeah. one. And, and refuses to apologize and refuses to, refuses to take part in any sort of reparation for, for what it's done and continues to, lead, to live haunted by the guilty conscience, I think, that resulted from those sorts of actions because uh, American foreign policy is often animated by a level of paranoia that defies reason. Uh, especially paranoia that other sort of states are going to obtain this sort of weaponry or all we all these action movies have to do with, you know, the le- the leaking of nuclear technology to these sort of bad guys. It's, who are the only who are the only people who have ever used that technology? Right. It's uh, it's kind of a reminds me of Crusoe and sort of this fantastic paranoia. Um, but yeah, so so Halak, for example, he and this is not to say and, and we should clarify because some people think uh, in in too stark of terms. So when they think about critiquing modernity, they're assuming that modernity is just, you know, um, uh, technology and computers and cell phones and stuff like that. And so the, the question that always, you know, or the retort that people always give is, well, okay, well, uh, you don't want to have technology. You don't want to have this and you don't want to have that. So no, the idea behind the episteme or the difference in the episteme that we're, we're drawing here is that and Islamic modernity, if we're going to say that um, if modernity is simply technological process or excuse me, technological progress, then an Islamic modernity would have produced the goods that we enjoy without the bads, right? Like certain things would have been impossible, yeah. right? We don't need to uh, choose between, oh, well, if we want internet, then we have to also have the nuclear warhead, right? That's not a foregone conclusion, right? We could have had the internet without the nuclear warhead. But we didn't. Why didn't we? Because we have we live under a certain episteme that separates, as Halak says, the separation between is and ought, which is what you just said. For example, when if we can do it, meaning if it's exactly. possible to physically be done, then it should be done. Then we can. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Whereas uh, leaving aside all concerns as to you know what should we do, like what's the best thing, what's the most moral thing, and so he compares the technology. He goes back all the way to the the limited liability corporation and has some interesting sort of citations about the debate about that, that economic technology when it first arose and kind of the debate around how it was going to be potentially abusive. And he compares it to the wealth system, which is kind of the opposite. Could you, um, so could you explain what that system is for those who might not know? Yeah, so the wealth system is a system of, uh, we could say, either a trust or an endowment. So it has to do with freezing an underlying asset, usually land um, and, or, or a building or something like that. And uh, freezing it in the sense that it cannot be sold, it cannot be transferred, it cannot be given away as a gift, and it cannot be inherited. Uh, and it is uh, the, the usufruct, which is the technical term for the revenue that it generates, 
uh, is dedicated to a certain charitable cause. Um, and Halak uh, goes into a lot of detail about the Waqf system and how central the Waqf system was to, uh, to Islamic civilization for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and that is completely in line with everything that I've ever read, even from you know, classical Islamic sources that describe how there used to be certain uh, endowments like this that were running hospitals, for example, and certain that were running schools and others that were paving the roads or making roads and others that were providing water to people on the street. And, and education, sporting scholars, ulama uh, as well. And this, of course, independent of the state. So these scholars were not employees of the state and yes. all the, 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 the connections and the ties and the liabilities that that inevitably means. They were independent and they had their own in revenue from, say, the land or the, the the house or the building, whatever you mentioned. Exactly. And that, that is the, the the point that he's driving to specifically in restating Orientalism, where he eventually addresses education as its own, uh, as its own thing and shows how independent, like what, uh, it's, it's not to say that there was never any relationship or even attempted interference between, say, uh, a regime or a political regime and a waqf or their educational institutions, but there was no national curriculum and national standards and uh, enforcement of uh, these pronouns or that pronouns or this curriculum or that curriculum. It was very, very much more uh, decentralized and independent. And so you know, it avoided that sort of conflict of interest. I, and I remember a friend of mine saying, I forget the exact date, um, but there was a time when this, the ulama, the, the Islamic scholars at Al-Azhar University, the most, one of the most, if not the most prestigious seat of learning in the, in the Muslim world, were, were obviously scholars and independent. And they, there was a time in the 20th century, it might have been under Nasser, I forget when, uh, when they became employees of yes. the state they became civil servants. Yes. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine the change that meant when the state actually employs you. Are you going to criticize the state? Are you then going to accept its directives, its programs, its encouragements, perhaps, to maybe not say this and maybe look at that? You're not independent anymore. And But it gave them job security because they were employed by the state, but at a huge cost. And and so that I don't want to criticize institutions directly because I know nothing about it, but it, it does seem that they are now civil servants, whereas before they were independent, and that surely that is significant. Yes, and, and that's actually one of the beauties of, of specifically that book is Halak goes into uh, uh, a lot of detail and, and skips around the Muslim world to show the, the process. And it mostly happened across the 1800s, particularly the latter half of the 1800s. Um, we're talking Algeria, we're talking Egypt, we're talking even, even the Ottoman Empire, um, India, Pakistan, Indonesia. The playbook was always the same. And it comes right back to that state sovereignty that he talks about and what you just kind of illustrated is that that in order for state sovereignty to be asserted, the first thing that they did when they came to Muslim lands was break up the waqfs. They broke up the waqf. They seized the property, their underlying assets. It could no longer function independently. It had to be subsumed within a department of this, Department of Education, Department of Property. Though sometimes it was as crude as those underlying assets being put back on the market and returned to circulation. But sometimes they let them exist, but they exactly like with Al-Azhar, they appropriated the usufruct or they meddled with the, um, they salaried everybody and they yes. brought them under the centralized control yes. of, the, of the sovereign state. And so that was maybe even more significant. This is where Halak would draw a distinction between sort of like pre-modern colonialism, which is kind of your Columbus and your, these guys who are just going for conversion and stealing gold, and, you know, barbarism and things like that, yes. versus once we get to the 18th, uh, excuse me, the, the 19th century, the 1800s, um, it's kind of a different flavor. That's where his 
definition of modernity really kicks off where um, it's about the sovereign state. It's yes. about control. It's about controlling the internal subject, producing an entirely new subject. And this is where we get quotes from all the colonial administrators. You know, we want to kill the Indian and save the man. Or, you know, we want people who are uh, Indian in their color and in their etc. But they're they're British in their mannerisms and their opinions and etc. etc. This type of thinking where we want to keep the thin superficial diversity, but the internal diversity, we want to crush it. We want to make sure that there is no subjectivity except for a subjectivity that is obedient to the secular state and its logic. Um, and so that's where they reformed uh, law codes. Halak goes into a lot of detail about reforming of the legal codes and compares the, the Sharia and all of its kind of, um, you know, its, its local sensitivities, its decentralized nature uh, versus the kind of codification of law that became very rigid and inflexible and, and centralized again, from Morocco to Indonesia, like he skips across the Muslim world and shows how this is only uh, possible with th within this sort of episteme that demands this sort of totalitarian control of the internal self. This did not exist. This is unprecedented. That's Halak's claim. And I like that, unprecedented. And, and that's the point. I mean, he's very critical in the impossible state, which by which he means the Islamic state in a, a conceived a modern state is impossible because of those reasons. Simply to Islamicize the modern state is not... Is, is, a, is a contradiction in terms. The, the Islamic governance has always been very different, been more de decentralized. There's been these independent uh, uh, agencies like uh, the ulama uh, and so on. It's not this absolute state, this unprecedented phenomenon we see we see today, which he which he says is very un-Islamic. You can't just Islamize it. You have to have a different paradigm. Uh, although I'm not sure he talks about the alternative paradigm in that book. But um, and this is a central question for Muslims, of course, in terms of the caliphate, uh, which I think is a really important subject, different area, of course, of discourse from us now, but uh, he makes some very profound points. And for a Christian is to make these points for a Muslim audience who are appreciating what he's saying is also unprecedented, I think. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and I mean, we see the illustrations of, of those points now, right? You look at, look at all the examples that we have of a state-sponsored Islam. Yeah. You know, have, without naming names, everybody knows, you know, the sort of the, when the state gets behind Islam, it's always with an agenda. It's impossible not to. And so they're in the process of curating that tradition to mm. something that's amenable to their own interests. Um, and then because it's the sovereignty of the state that's at, that's at stake, um, they're going to be very, very ready to declare anything and everything else as not Islam, as heresy, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's actually a very precarious thing. We can't have just an Islam that's simply sprinkled on top of uh, the same forms and the same episteme that yeah. has produced the, the modern state. We really do need a, a paradigm shift, uh, as it were. Um, yeah. But, yeah. And it just shows me really great ironies uh, of our, our time in the West. If you really want to be radical, if you want to be a subversive, you want to be a, a revolutionary, don't become an anarchist, don't become right. a Marxist, because a lot of your Marxist radical views are culturally dominant they're in the media they're fashionable corporations are shouting your slogans now if you really want to be a radical revolution you've got to be subversive be a muslim I mean, yeah very much be, so be a, or, or be a traditionalist i mean there are traditional catholics and others who occupy a similar kind of space in that kind of subversive area but muslims are the by far the biggest and un, un, unsubverted uh, religion in the world, though, and it's Muslims are the real—they're not a threat. That they are a potential 
hope for a different paradigm that could bring uh, much more holistic healing yeah. and liberation for humanity. So it's not a dangerous threat. It's actually uh, an alternative for hope where secular models and discourses just don't offer any answers about what is the meaning to life? How do we live our lives? How do we relate to God? Is there an afterlife? What does it mean to be good? That, that, that This discourse has nothing really to give, no answers really, but religion does have answers. And Islam preeminently has uh, the complete set of answers, arguably, um, to offer mankind. Uh, and that's the great hope, I think, of religion, um, where, where liberalism can't offer any answers really. Yes, no, that's, that's, I think, one of the most important things, especially to drive home to non-Muslims, is that uh, look at the society that we're in. Everybody is sick. Everybody's sick uh, when it comes to there's the, the drug addiction and pornography and, and, and your media and everything. People are living, living miserable lives. And it's impressive the degree to which corporate mass media is able to convince people that they are living in the most free and happy time that has ever existed, the pinnacle of progress of Western civilization. We've got the best of the Greeks and the best of Christianity and the best of this and the best of that. And yet everybody's sick. We're killing the earth, you know, that we're destroying the environment. Uh, nobody's happy. Right? And uh, there's this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance that, that people have yet to admit. But I think if they admit it, then they need to start looking for, for alternatives and for redemption. Uh, that's, that's the word that I like to use, that Islam has the redemption of the West or any place inside of it. Uh, and that, again, last hope. It's the last hope because yes. the kind of, uh, whether it's the secular state or whether it's kind of the corporate interests or neoliberal capitalism has successfully managed to, to co-opt every other sort of movement and resistance, as you said. You know, and now you've got, you've got uh, pride flags on, on, on warheads that get dropped on countries. Right. That's just like a perfect metaphor for um, the trivialization of what people incorrectly assume is some sort of liberatory, uh, you know, worldview or something like that. Uh, I, I saw I saw a recent prior. I won't mention what it is, but there was a, a, a U.S. Army uh, advert uh, or military advert. I'm not to the army or not. And it had a picture of a helmet, and it had a picture of four bullets strapped to the helmet. And this is an official military U.S. military advert, by the way. And they were all gay pride things, like gay bullets. Basically. <laughs> and the idea is you can you can go and fight and kill the enemy with some gay bullets in the name of that. I mean, it, it, it's unthinkable that this has been done five minutes ago. And now this is now official propaganda. Yes. Uh, LGBT bullets that will kill the enemy. I mean, right. presumably Muslims or, or um, yes. unbelievable. And if, that doesn't make, if that doesn't make people stop and think, I don't know what will, because people exactly. need realize the ways in which they're being used and even their 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 good sensibilities of justice or their sympathies are being used and co-opted right all of these things are part of the same cultural force the same global monoculture that's kind of being uh, shoved down our throats and the only thing left the only thing left to resist it is islam so and if we sacrifice as you were saying that the sad thing is that if we sacrifice that islam in order to fit in and curate our tradition and for the sake of political alliances we're going to lose the exact thing that stands to redeem mm. the place that we live in and everybody in it. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, um, I guess that's it. Well, th thank you very much uh, indeed, uh, Imam Tom, for uh, your prodigious reading and your time. And uh, I, I, I will um, I'll itemize the books that you've mentioned in the description below, as well as put a link to 
um, your mosque and your YouTube channel, which is definitely worth uh, following. You're very, very active on YouTube, producing some very good quality content on a on a daily, almost hourly basis. Sometimes I feel it's 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 a, a great output there. Um, and um, well, thank you very much, um, Imam Tom, for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Pleasure. Take them until next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.